All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll, as always, continue our study of 1 John. Father, thank You that You have taken a people like us, people who have broken every law that has ever been given to us, a people who have hated Your name, despised Your glory, rebelled against Your authority, spurned Your grace, shown indifference toward Your love, and have lived a life of constant rebellion against You. And yet You have delivered a people such as us from sin, from corruption, from judgment, and You have called us out of the world into the light of Your kingdom that the very people who hated You might be an assembly of redeemed worshipers who glorify You. The very people who despised Your name are now the ones who praise Your name. The very ones who sought to rob You of Your glory are the ones who are saved for the praise of Your glory. What a magnificent reality. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We thank You for the glory of the Gospel. We thank You for the wonders of our salvation. We'll spend the rest of eternity considering the great glory of God revealed in the Gospel. And so it is our joy this morning to do just that. To open the Word of God, to hear from heaven, to behold the majesty of our Savior. And I pray for all of us here today, for all of your saints who've gathered this morning to worship you, I pray that each of us would have our hearts sanctified by the truth, our affections stirred so as to love Christ more, that our intellect would be stimulated with truth, and that our will and volition would be moved and resolved to become more obedient to our God. We pray that you would accept our worship. We know that our worship could never be acceptable to you apart from the work of your Son. And so we offer up through Christ the fruit of lips that give praise to your name. And we trust that our sacrifices of worship, our prayers, our songs, our fellowship, our sitting under the ministry of the Word, and responding to the Word in obedience, that all of that is acceptable through Him. And we thank you for that. And now as we open up Your Word, what do we want You to do for us? We want You to glorify Your name through Your Word. We want Your Word to accomplish its purpose in our hearts. We want our minds to be open so as to understand the truth. And we pray that You would help us to know what this passage says, what this passage means by what it says, and how it applies to our lives, that we might live it out in the power of the Spirit for Your glory. We pray these things to that end. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles and you haven't already, you can turn with me to the third chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And this morning, we are going to finish up the third chapter. We come to the last section, a section we started to look at last time a few weeks ago, and a section we will finish up this morning. Verses 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. We are still dealing with the theme of assurance. The theme of assurance. That's John's focus. He wants his readers to have confidence in their salvation, assurance that they have eternal life. And the problem is that there were false teachers in Asia Minor who were purveying an erroneous form of Christianity, a counterfeit version of Christianity. And in doing so, they were threatening the assurance of the believers there. The believers that John considered his beloved children... And so out of a love for this flock, he wrote a letter to them. 
that serves as a series of tests by which we can distinguish between who is true and who is not, who is real and who is fake, between true Christianity and false Christianity. And the three tests are, as you already know, doctrinal, moral, and social. The doctrinal test, the moral test, the social test. True Christians believe the truth, they obey the truth, and they love in truth. Those are the marks of any genuine Christian. Those three tests serve as the litmus test of true Christianity. And we've already seen the tests over and over again. John has cycled through them twice. Uh, This morning, however, he kind of gives us a summary of all of them in one passage. Usually we deal with one test each in each passage, but in this passage, John brings them all together in a beautiful, uh, kind of woves them together as one beautiful text. So let me read that text to you. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. There John writes, We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. I told you last time that this passage, the theme of it, becomes obvious through three similar words that John uses that all express the same idea. The first word is the word know. The word know. Verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth. We can know. He uses that same word in the second half of verse 24. We know by this that He abides in us. As Christians, there is something that we can know. Christianity is not postmodernism. This isn't a land of oblivion. This isn't darkness. This isn't your truth, my truth, there is no truth. Christianity is a religion of absolute, a religion of certainty, a religion of absolute knowledge. So we can know. The second word is the word assure. The word assure. And you have to start with knowing because you can't be assured of anything if you don't know something. So it starts with knowledge and then it leads to assurance. John uses that word in verse 19 also. There he says, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. Believers can have assurance. Finally, the last word he uses is the word confidence. The word confidence. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this is a passage about assurance. It's a passage about confidence. A passage about knowing with absolute certainty. In other words, it's a passage that deals with confidence before God. Which is to say, believers can have assurance of salvation. Believers can know with absolute certainty and confidence that they have eternal life. Of course... Assurance is a strange thing because there are many professing Christians who despite the clarity of Scripture on the issue of assurance, they struggle to attain that assurance. We sing about it in church. We sing blessed assurance. We think about it. We talk about it. But for many Christians, they just struggle to ever possess that assurance. It is this 
uh, all-elusive Easter egg that they just cannot find. Assurance eludes them. Many live with terrifying fear of death, terrifying fear of judgment. They think very harsh thoughts about God, thinking that God is constantly angry with them, and that even though they profess Christ, even though they go to church, even though they seem to live for Him, yet they're terrified of His wrath. And of course, on the other side, there are people who profess to be Christians, who live in sin, who go to church, but their lives are marked by unrighteousness, and yet they would never question the reality of their salvation. They would never question the certainty of their eternal destiny because some preacher told them all they have to do is pray a prayer and they're automatically in the kingdom. You just jump through a few evangelical hoops, you agree with a few gospel truths, four spiritual laws, I've got that, I'm a Christian, I'm in the kingdom. In fact, I grew up in Southern Baptist Church and thought I was saved because I prayed a prayer when I was seven. I thought my whole life I was going to heaven. I lived in sin, immorality, uh, indifference to the things of God, but I was going to heaven because I said the prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. The idea that someone could do that and not be saved was absolutely radical for me. It was unheard of, totally foreign. And then I heard a sermon on the internet by a man named Paul Washer, Paul Washer's Shocking Youth Message, and uh, hence the name Shocking, because the theme of the sermon is that if you profess to be a Christian while living in unrepentant habitual sin and indifference to God, you're not a Christian. That obviously shook my world, and God saved me that day. But there are people like that, people who would stand before Christ on the day of judgment with false assurance saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I pray the prayer? Didn't I go to vacation Bible school? Didn't I go to Sunday school? Only to hear those words, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many people just like that. People with a false assurance. People, like I said last time, in the words of Jeremiah 6.14, who say to themselves, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They say, peace, peace, and in reality, sudden destruction is soon to come upon them. But many possess an assurance just like that. So it works out kind of strange. There are people who are truly converted. There are people who really do belong to Christ, who really are headed for heaven, who struggle to attain assurance. And then paradoxically, there are people who are absolutely headed for hell, who think they're saved and going to heaven. That's a strange phenomenon, but that's the way assurance works. But John's exhortation is relevant to both groups of people. Because John says here that there are certain distinguishing marks by which you can identify a true Christian. If those marks are true of you, then you can have assurance. But if they're not, then you can have no assurance. And it really is as simple as that. Of course, the issue is further distorted by the many Christian groups who deny the possibility of assurance altogether. I told you last time that Pelagians and Arminians teach that you can actually lose your salvation. Salvation is kind of a synergistic effort between God and man. They work together to earn and maintain salvation. Salvation is by grace, but only after all we can do, as Joseph Smith taught in Mormonism. Salvation is by faith and grace, but also by merit and works, as the Roman Catholic Church would teach. That's why many Roman Catholics think that at best they're just going to purgatory. They have to be purged. They don't have enough merit to go to heaven. 
And in a system of thought like this, assurance, absolute certainty, is absolutely impossible because, again, you could never know if you have enough works, enough merit, enough righteousness, enough obedience, and even if you did, who knows, you might wake up tomorrow and blow it all with some mortal sin. And so within Roman Catholicism, in any legalistic works-based religion, assurance is utterly impossible. And you have to feel for such people because they live their entire lives fastidiously devoted to religiosity and ceremony and legalism, and yet they have no certainty as to where they're going to spend eternity. must be a sad way to live your life. But the good news is that Scripture is crystal clear on this issue. Christians can have absolute assurance of their salvation. That's the whole reason John wrote the letter. 1 John 5.13 contradicts any group who denies the possibility of assurance. John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. According to John, we can know that we have eternal life. Believers can and should have assurance. Beyond that, according to 2 Corinthians 13.5, it is our responsibility to examine ourselves and to attain this assurance. It is our responsibility to examine our lives in the light of Scripture and attain assurance of salvation. But how do we do that? How can we know with absolute certainty that we are saved? How can you know with absolute assurance that you are really a Christian headed for heaven? Well, John helps us with that in this passage this morning by presenting to us four avenues of assurance. Four avenues of assurance. And as we work through the passage, may we commit to examining our lives in the light of these avenues in hopes that we might assure our hearts before Him. So four avenues of assurance. We looked at the first one last time. And before we move on to the other three, let me just give you some review here. In verse 19, we see that we have assurance in love. Assurance in love. Look at verse 19. John said, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. We will know by this. By what? Well, you've got to go back to verse 18. By loving in deed and in truth. Those who love sacrificially and selflessly like Christ love them, those who love in deed and in truth will by that love know that they are of the truth. They will know that they belong to the truth, that they are truly saved. And therefore they will assure their hearts before God. Verse 20 tells us that this assurance is in whatever our heart condemns us. Whatever our heart condemns us. That's the issue. That's the issue. A condemning heart. An accusing conscience. Many struggle to attain assurance because their heart convinces them that they are unsaved. But if you look at your life and you see increasing, growing, Christ-like, sacrificial love as the mark of your life, then you can have assurance regardless of what your heart says. Because John goes on and tells us that God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked often. Our hearts lie to us. But God, in His omniscience, knows the truth. God knows those who are His. And He has provided us trustworthy, reliable marks 
by which we can identify ourselves as one of His. And so if you're here this morning, and your life is marked by love, and your heart condemns you, then believe the Word of God over the Word of your heart. Believe the testimony of God over the testimony of your condemning conscience. Because God is greater, and He knows the truth. And finally, in verse 21, John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's what you want, right? You want confidence before God. How do you get that? Well, you have to have a heart that doesn't condemn you. How do you get that? You have to have assurance that you're saved. How do you get that? Back to verse 19. By this, by love. Those who see love as the dominant characteristic of their lives will know that they belong to God and can have confidence before Him. So that was the first avenue of assurance. There's three more here that John provides for us, and that'll be the focus of our attention this morning. So number two, not only do we have assurance in love, but we also have assurance in prayer. Assurance in prayer. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? As Christians, we're people who pray, and we don't pray for to no avail. We pray because we want God to hear and answer our prayers. And here comes a glorious promise that whatever we ask, we receive from Him. So this confidence before God is not only an assurance of salvation, it's also an assurance of answered prayer. Confident that God will answer our prayers. Remember I told you last week that the Greek word in verse 21 translated confidence is the word parousia, parousia, and it means boldness or freedom of speech. It's the word used in Hebrews 4.16 where the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. It's a boldness in prayer, a freedom of speech in prayer. Look, if you're, if you're confident that you're saved, if you're confident that you're in a saving relationship with God, then you're going to be confident that God is going to hear and answer your prayers. If you think of God as nothing more than an angry judge, which He is an angry judge toward the wicked, but if you think that He's that way toward you, then you're going to be afraid to pray. You're going to fear that God's not going to answer your prayers. But if you see God as your loving Father in Christ, and you know that you're in saving communion with Him, then you know He hears and answers your prayers. So believers can have confidence in prayer. And what is it that we receive in prayer? Well, here he says, whatever we ask. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. That almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Him. There's really no condition here other than asking. Other than asking. You're not going to see this in your English text because unfortunately the Greek word aeon is not translated in the English text. But it's basically the word if. It's a conditional particle, a particle that indicates that a statement is conditional. The, the Greek text could literally be read this way. And whatever, if we ask, we receive from Him. If we ask. This is the condition then. Asking is a condition for answered prayer. You know, often you're not going to receive from God what you don't ask for. That's not always the case. Obviously, we enjoy many things in our Christian lives that we don't ask for. 
But there are times that God withholds from His people good things because they haven't asked for those things. And if we would only ask, God would give them to us. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, isn't it? What did He say? Ask and you shall what? Receive. Receive. Seek and it shall find. Knock and it will be open to you. Then He said, for everyone who asks, receives. We have to ask. James chapter 4, verse 2 also affirms that asking is a condition for answered prayer. What does James say there? You do not have because what? You do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. So asking then is a condition for answered prayer. So, let's put it together. If we ask, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. The condition is merely asking. Now, does that mean that if I ask for a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, that God's somehow obligated to give it to me? Does that mean that if I ask God for riches and He doesn't give it to me, that I should now doubt the validity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible? Is this verse really teaching me that I can literally receive anything and everything my heart desires if I just ask? Is that what it's teaching? Is God a magical genie? that just grants you your every wish? Just a servant that... It's like a vending machine. I push in the buttons and I get whatever I ask for. Is John teaching the prosperity gospel here? And the answer is no. We understand that there are heretics who take verses like this and run with them out of context and make them teach something they were never intended to teach. Right? We understand that. But that's not what John is doing. John is not teaching the prosperity, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it heresy that is so prevalent on TV today within Christian circles. John's not saying that. John is not saying that we can receive whatever we want without condition and without qualification. How do I know that? Because there are many other conditions for answered prayer listed elsewhere in the Bible. And here's you a Bible study tip. One important principle of interpreting the Bible is this. The Bible interprets the Bible. That's profound, isn't it? The Bible interprets the Bible. Do you know what the best commentary on the Bible is? The Bible. The Bible, the Word of God. Scripture is its own best commentary. Which means that if your interpretation of the passage of Scripture contradicts another clear teaching in Scripture... Your interpretation is wrong because the Bible never contradicts itself. We have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. One of my seminary professors said this, the context of any text is every text. The context of any text is every text. We have a completed Bible, and so we read every passage in light of the whole. There is a system of theology that is set forth within the Scripture, and we read every verse in light of that truth. And therefore, let's do that now this morning. Let's, let's look at some Scripture, some of the other conditions on answered prayer, and then by doing that, we'll have a full-orbed view on prayer, a comprehensive biblical perspective. And I'll just read these to you. Let's start with another condition for answered prayer. James chapter 4. Not only must we ask, but another condition is that we must ask with the right motives. The right intent. Listen to James 4. Right after he says, you do not have because you do not ask, he then adds, you ask and do not receive. So wait a minute. 
It's possible then to ask and not receive. Why? Why is it that sometimes when we pray, we don't receive that which we ask for? Well, James gives us an answer. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Well, there goes the Lamborghini dream, right? You ask with the wrong intent, the wrong desires. Perhaps sometimes our prayers are left unanswered because they're self-focused, self-consumed, self-centered. We have to ask with the right motives. Our prayers are to be God-centered, Christ-exalting, kingdom-focused. And as we'll see later, if your prayers are that, are that way, then you can expect that they'll be answered. But we must pray with the right motives. But there's another important condition for answered prayer, and that is faith. Faith. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus says this, All things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. All things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. So there's another condition. We must ask in faith. We must believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and that He has promised to give good gifts to His children. We must ask in faith. James also mentions that in James chapter 1, verse 6. He says there, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. And then in verse 7 he says, For that man, that is the man who doubts, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. So we have to ask in faith. And if we doubt, we shouldn't expect to receive anything. We must pray in faith. It robs God of His glory when we pray without faith. Because we're insinuating that God is unable to do that which He's able to do. So to pray in faith is to give God glory. It's to affirm the faithfulness of God and the power of God and the glory of God. So often we have to pray like the man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We should should ask like one of the men who come up to Jesus and he said, Lord, I know that you can heal me if you're willing. Not like the other guy who said, if you can. Jesus says, if you can. Of course He can. We should pray in faith. But there has to be more to it, right, than just the right motives and praying in faith. I could pray with a great amount of faith that God would give me a Lamborghini, but it doesn't mean He's going to. There's more to it then. Another important condition for answered prayer is that we must pray in the name of Christ. We must pray in the name of of Christ. Jesus taught us that in the Gospel of John. John 16.23, we read this, If you ask the Father for anything in My name, He will give it to you. So if you pray in the name of Christ, God will answer your prayers. Simple enough, but what does that mean? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Does it mean that at the end of our prayers, we tag on, in Jesus' name, Amen? As if that's some magical formula that guarantees answered prayer? No, right? In fact, if you read the book of Acts, if you read the New Testament, never once do you find anybody finishing their prayers by saying in Jesus' name, Amen. Nothing inherently wrong with that, but that's not what Jesus was teaching us. So that means something else. What does it mean then? What does it mean to pray in the name of Christ? John chapter 14 Verse 13 gives us a little insight on that. Let me read that to you. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do. Why? 
so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See that? The focus then is on the glory of Christ, the glory of God, the glory of the triune God. Not merely our glory, not our desires. To pray then in the name of Christ is to pray in a way that is consistent with His will, His purposes, and His glory, and His kingdom. It's to pray things that bring glory to Christ. That means, by the way, if you're praying for things that don't bring glory to Christ, then you're not praying in the name of Christ, even if you tag on in Jesus' name at the very end of your prayers. You could have someone who prays a selfish prayer, closes with, in Jesus' name, Amen, who's not praying in the name of Christ. And then you have another guy who doesn't say that at the end of his prayer, but he's praying prayers that are lined up with God's glory. That person is praying in the name of Christ. It's not merely about a formula that you utter at the end of a prayer. It's about an attitude and a heart with which you pray. It's to pray in a way that lines up with His purposes and His glory. In chapter 5, John gives us another important condition. Go to chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Starting in verse 14, just a page to the right. John gives us one really important condition for answered prayer here. There, he says this, verse 14, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which, which, which we have asked from Him. So this confidence before God is a confidence in answered prayer, and that confidence comes to those who pray according to God's will. If we ask anything according to His will. You can go back to chapter 3 now. So as we reach verse 22 in chapter 3, we have to read it in light of chapter 5. Whatever you ask According to His will, you will receive from Him. That would be an accurate interpretation. So that's the issue then. That's the ultimate condition. We must pray according to the will of God. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, when your will becomes God's will, then you will have your will. Right? When your will becomes God's will, then you will have your will. So the issue then is lining your heart lining your desires, lining your will up with God's will, and then you'll have a fruitful prayer life. When your will becomes God's will, then you'll have your will. Psalm 37.4 sums it up really well for us. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's wonderful, isn't it? Glorious promise. Delight yourself in God. And if you do that, God will plant His own desires in you. Your desires will become God's desires, and then God will grant you your desires. So pray according to the will of God. Those are the conditions then. If you ask in faith, with the right motives, in the name of Christ, in a way that's consistent with His purposes, His kingdom, His glory, His will, then you will receive whatever you ask from Him. Believers, and have assurance in prayer. And then that confidence in prayer will lead to assurance of salvation because as we see God answering our prayers, it only affirms in our hearts that we are His children and thus it gives us confidence that indeed we are saved. So those are the conditions. But John gives us another condition here in the text. Here in chapter 3, verse 22. He really summarizes all of the conditions in this one statement. 
And it's more than a condition. Here we have a description of the ones who can receive answered prayer from God. Why is it that whatever we ask, we receive from Him? The second half of verse 22 says, because, here's the link, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. God answers our prayers as believers because we obey His commandments and do what is pleasing in His sight. So we must pray with a heart of obedience. An obedient heart, a submissive heart, is going to be a heart that prays for things that bring honor and glory to God, and therefore that's the person that can expect to receive answered prayer. So if you want answered prayer, that's what you do. Perhaps you have something you've been praying about for quite some time. What do you do? You pray with a heart that is obedient to the Word of God. How do you do that? How do you pray in a way that is consistent with the will of God? Well, you have to know the will of God, right? How do you know the will of God? Where do you learn the will of God at? The Bible. So the best way to pray then is to pray in accordance with Scripture. The best way to pray is to pray the Bible. Pray the Psalms. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Turn the Scripture into a prayer. And then you'll have confidence that you're praying according to God's will. But God answers the prayers of those who pray with an obedient heart. John learned this from our Lord Himself, like He did all things. In John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said this, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's exactly what John is saying here. Continue in Christ. Continue in His Word. Continue to believe His Word. Love His Word. Delight in His Word. Obey His Word. And if you do that, God will answer your prayer. Because a heart that delights in the Word of God prays for things that glorify God, and God thus is pleased to answer our prayers. So that's the condition. Let the Word abide in your heart. Let it continue in your heart. John MacArthur, commenting on these verses, said this, True believers obey the Lord's commands, submitting to His Word. Because of their commitments to God's Word, they are devoted to His will, Thus their prayers are fruitful, which puts God's glory on display as He answers. If you pray in such a way that God answering it would bring Him glory, you can bet He'll answer your prayers. Because God wants to glorify Himself even more than you want to glorify Him. And so if you're praying in ways that glorify God, your prayers will be answered. That's the key. You see how this is a God-centered perspective on prayer? Not a man-centered What did Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? How does it start? Father, hallowed be what? Your name. Not my name, your name. And whose kingdom come? Your kingdom, not my kingdom. And whose will be done? Your will. It's a God-centered formula. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. That's what Scripture teaches us everywhere. And so that's the condition. You'll receive whatever you ask from Him if you're praying God-centered, God-honoring, God-glorifying prayers. That's the key. We have to delight in God, and then if we do, He'll delight in answering our prayers. Proverbs 15.29 gives us one of those verses that uh, perhaps you've quoted before. It says that the Lord is far from the wicked. He's far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. That's the key. If you're living in sin and 
disobedience to God, you cannot expect your prayers to be fruitful. But if you are living a life of obedience, God will answer your prayers. It's not that we earn God's favor by our obedience, but it's that God, again, delights to answer the prayers of those who delight in His will. So we must pray with obedience. We have, then, assurance in prayer. But let me give you a third avenue of assurance. Not only do we have assurance in love, not only do we have assurance in prayer, but thirdly, we have assurance in obedience. In obedience. And we've already begun to consider that, but we'll do it in more detail now. Why is it that God answers our prayers? Because, verse 22, we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We keep His commandments. The word keep, terao. The word means to guard, to watch over, to keep intact, to preserve has the idea of not leaving. As Christians, we are those who do not leave God's commandments. We don't abandon the law. The psalmist said that. He said, I do not forsake your precepts. We don't abandon the law of God. We walk in the law of God. We keep the commandments of God. We walk in a path of obedience. That's the pattern of the life of a true believer. Obedience to God's commandments. Now, what commandments? What commandments? We've talked about this before. I don't need to rehash all of this for you again. But just to simplify, it's the moral law. The moral law. Christians love and obey the moral law of God. We understand that the law can be divided into three categories. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. The ceremonial law, we know, is nothing more than a type of Christ, a shadow of Christ. Christ has come, and so the ceremonial law is abolished. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. We don't observe the Old Testament Jewish holy days and the feast because that ceremonial law has been abolished with the coming of Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that. But the moral law, on the other hand, is binding on all people in all ages. The moral law is binding on all people in all ages. Jesus implied that, didn't He? When He said in Matthew 5, I did not come to what? abolish the law, but to fulfill. didn't come to abolish it. In fact, he goes on and says, anyone who teaches someone to nullify the least of these commandments is going to be called least in the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not getting in. If you're living in disobedience to God, you're not a believer because the moral law is still binding. The moral law is rooted in God's own character. Think about it. We're called not to lie. Why? Because God is not a liar. We're told not to steal because God is not a thief. We're not to commit adultery because God is not an adulterer. We're not to be an idolater because God is not an idolater. So the law, the moral law, is rooted in God. It's summed up for us in the Ten Commandments, what we often call the Decalogue. And it's written on the hearts of every person at birth so that all of us know that law. And though believers are freed from the moral law as a covenant of works, yet we still possess that law as a rule of life. You've got to get that distinction. We're freed from the law as a covenant of works, but we still possess it as a rule of life. In other words, we're liberated from its condemnation, but we're not liberated from its obligation. Liberated from its condemnation, but not its obligation. We still have it as a guide. It reveals the moral will of God to us, 
and therefore we love it and we obey it. We keep God's law. We obey His commandments. Or, as the second half of verse 22 says, we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. What's pleasing in His sight? Obeying His commandments. Obeying His moral law. Now, if you're anything like me, and you love the doctrines of grace, you love the glorious truths of the Reformation, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, perhaps you read a statement like that and you think, wait a minute, what is that legalism? No, it's not legalism. We understand that no person on his own inherently could ever do anything that pleases God. All of us have become an unclean thing. Our greatest righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We understand that. We are only pleasing to God. We are only acceptable to God because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Because we're robed in the perfect garments of His righteousness. But, for those who are in Christ, we can live lives that please Him now because our obedience is acceptable to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our obedience is acceptable through Christ. Our obedience then is not the meritorious cause of our salvation. That is to say, it doesn't earn the favor of God, but it is an expression of a heart that loves Him and that pleases Him. Obedience from a heart of love with a view to His glory pleases God. And that's why He answers our prayers, because we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Because we obey His commandments. In verse 23, John goes on to specify what commandments he's talking about. He says there, verse 23, this is His commandment. Here we go. Here's a summary. Here's a two-fold commandment that summarizes all of them. This is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. A two-fold commandment that fulfills the rest of them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what Jesus told. What did Jesus say? What's the greatest commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And He said, upon that, that law of love, the whole law and the prophets depend. The whole law and the whole prophets depend upon the law of love. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul refers to it as the law of Christ. The law of Christ. Because it's the moral law of God summarized for us in the new covenant by Christ as love God and love your neighbor. It's the law of Christ. John does the same thing here. John summarizes the entirety of the law up for us in two commandments. Only here, he slightly alters the first and greatest commandment. The first commandment, he says, is that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, to love God in the new covenant is to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, the one in whom He has revealed Himself through the Incarnation. Anyone who does not believe in Christ does not love God. Anyone who does not believe in Christ does not love God. That's why Paul, later in 1 Corinthians 16, says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is to be damned. If you don't love Christ, you don't believe in Christ, you don't love God. You don't meet the first commandment, the great commandment. To love God is to believe in Christ. 
It's to believe in His name. What's a name? A name to the Hebrew was significant. It meant a lot. It meant all that was true of a person. So the name of Christ is all that He is and all that He does. It is to believe in His person and His work. It is to believe in His deity and His humanity. It's to believe that He's God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And unless you believe that, John 8.24 says you're going to die in your sin. Unless you believe that Jesus is God, you will perish. If you don't believe in that Jesus, you don't believe in any Jesus at all, because the true Jesus is the Jesus who is God. We know the heretics denied that. That's the point. The false teachers in Asia Minor taught a different Christ. So John says they're not true believers. They don't love God. They don't meet the commandments. But those who meet the commandments, those who love God are those who believe in Christ. And that takes care of the first table of the law, doesn't it? Because if you love God by believing in Christ, you're going to believe the truth about God. You're not going to make false gods to worship. You're not going to blaspheme His name by rejecting His Son. And you're going to worship Him as He's prescribed, including on the day that He's prescribed, namely the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. So that deals with the first table of the law. But then the second commandment is that we love one another. We believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That deals with the second table of the law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder him, you're not going to steal his possessions, covet his belongings, commit adultery with his wife, etc., etc., etc. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, love is the fulfillment of the law, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. So John then summarizes the entirety of our moral duty up in this one preeminent commandment that is twofold, believe in Christ and love your neighbor. And those who do that keep the whole law. Those who do that walk in obedience to God and do what is pleasing to Him. And that obedience then provides assurance of our salvation. That's why in verse 24 John adds, the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. The one who has a habitual pattern of life lives in obedience to the moral law of God by loving God and loving his neighbor, that person can have evidence that he is in God and God in him. That's the person that can have assurance that he's in a saving relationship with God through Christ. As John said earlier in chapter 2, this is how we know we've come to know him. We keep his commandments. Jesus said the same thing. John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. So we have then assurance and obedience. But there's one more, very quickly. Number four, we have assurance in the Spirit. We have assurance in the Spirit. Look at the end of verse 24. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. We can know that He abides in us. We can know that He dwells in us. We can know that we're in a saving relationship with Him. How? By this. By the Spirit whom He has given to us. God the Father, through God the Son, has given us the gift of God the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, and it is that Spirit who provides us with assurance that we abide in Him. How does He do that? 
He does that by the fruit that He produces in our life. The fruit of the Spirit. Those who see His working, His fruit, His graces in their lives can have confidence that they are true believers. In fact, He's the one who produces all of the other marks of assurance in our lives. Love, obedience, answered prayer, faith in Christ, all of that is ultimately produced by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. That's why in Romans 8.16, Paul says that he's a spirit of adoption. Because he's the one that confirms our salvation and our sonship by his working in us. Paul made a strong statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. If you do have the Spirit, you are a believer. And if you do have the Spirit, you're going to know it because He doesn't come into anyone's life without transforming the way they live. The Holy Spirit changes our lives and gives evidence that we belong to God. John Stott put it this way, He said, so if we would set our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working. And particularly, whether He is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers. John Stott is right. If your heart condemns you this morning, if you fear that perhaps you're headed for hell, then all you have to do is look at your life. Do you see the Holy Spirit working in your heart? Do you see evidence of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life? If not, then you have a problem. If not, you have reason for fear and trembling. If not, it's because you do not belong to God. But if you can look at your life and say, yes, the Spirit is working in my heart. I'm growing in love for God, love for the truth, love for my neighbor, faith in Christ, obedience to the Word. Not, perfect, not perfectly, but growingly, increasingly. If you can see that, then you can have confidence that you belong to Him. So we have then assurance in the Spirit. So four avenues of assurance. Assurance in love. Assurance in prayer. Assurance in obedience. And assurance in the Spirit. To put it another way, Assurance is produced by love. It is expressed in prayer. It is rooted in obedience. And it is empowered by the Spirit. It's produced by love. Expressed in prayer. Rooted in obedience. And empowered by the Spirit. So those who see the work of the Spirit in their lives, producing faith in Christ, love for others, and obedience to God, can have confidence that they are true Christians. Is that you this morning, brothers and sisters? Does your heart condemn you? Or do you have confidence before God? Certainty of your salvation. If you do not have that confidence, please come talk with me after the service. I would be glad again to counsel you as to the condition of your soul and the reality of your eternity. But if you do look at your life and see that work, then praise God you can have confidence before Him. And then you can have what we sing about, that blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And indeed it is, because 
the best way to taste glory in this, on this side of life is to have confidence that you're headed for it in the next side. So may we examine ourselves that we might come to have this blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for Your people. pray that we would all have this confidence that John speaks of. pray that for none of us, Lord, that none of us would fear judgment. None of us would have to fear death. We know that Christ has destroyed the devil. He has destroyed him who had the power of death and therefore has delivered us from a fear of death. We know that our assurance then is rooted both in the work of Christ on the cross, but also the ongoing work of the Spirit in our hearts. And for those who see that ongoing work, we can know that we have overcome in Christ, we have victory in Christ, and we can have, therefore, blessed assurance. I pray that each of us would have that this morning. And again, I pray for anyone here who does not have that. Perhaps there are people here this morning who struggle with assurance for a good reason, because they're not really in Christ. I pray that they would look at their lives this morning in light of these avenues of assurance, and they would come to the realization that they're not believers, and that they would come to Christ in real saving faith, total submission, and find that salvation and assurance in Him. And for those of us whose hearts condemn us illegitimately, whose consciences accuse us without any good reason, I pray that we would come to have that assurance because we would believe the Word of God over the testimony of our own hearts. Thank You for providing us these marks of assurance. Help us now to walk in them and to live for Your glory, we pray. Amen.